0: Isaiah 52, uh, verse 12, where actually Isaiah 53 should have picked up, and uh, so we're going to read through the prophecy, but we're not going to get through it all tonight. Uh, There's a lot in there. There's a lot to discuss. There's no way in a few uh, Thursday nights that we can uh, do this. I I mean, um, all kinds of doctorates have been written uh, on this chapter. And uh, the atonement in general, uh, what it is to, you know, to what, what is penal uh, atonement, what is vicarious or substitutional atonement, all of those things. Many, many men have, have um, written books. I have books on this chapter, so we're not going to do a book, right? So, uh, so why don't we stand up um, and I'll read it to you. It's not extremely long, but if you need to sit, that's, that's fine. So Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, he says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted, extolled, and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or, or comeliness, that, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death because he had no uh, he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth yet it pleased the lord to bruise him he has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the lord shall prosper in his hand he shall see the labor of his soul And be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, Father, we thank you for the clarity, Lord, and of the anticipation from Isaiah's perspective, that a provision for our sin has been made. And Lord, I pray that You would teach us, Lord, that You'd help us to understand more clearly the nature of the atonement and, and what was really required for us to be forgiven, to be washed. What was demanded? Uh, how it was made possible for us to stand before You and not be consumed by Your wrath. Lord, thank You for this chapter, for this prophecy. Help us to. Not just understand, but to appreciate more, Lord, the sacrifice. So thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. You know, you look at a lot of um, the chapters of Isaiah, and you're thinking, what is he talking about? Um, what? Is he talking about Assyria? Is he talking about Babylon? Is he talking about the present? Is he talking about the near future, the distant future? You know, it, you, you've got to really pay attention to some of his prophecies. But when you get to this, this one here... Um, it's just tremendous, you know. I, I think I've told the story before. I, Shandy's, um, she worked for an orthodontist, and uh, for a, a tax write-off, he took uh, his staff and their their spouses to Cancun. It was a sacrifice, and uh, and all they had to do is have a like a a 15-minute meeting. Of course, they had it in the airport on the way home, um, but anyway, I was uh, on the plane. We were all, of course, crunched together, and I was. I don't know what I was studying for, but I was in Bible college, and, but I was looking at Old Testament prophecy that was uh, messianic in nature, you know where the Old Testament talks about Christ and his ministry, his birth and life and death and resurrection. And a girl in the office had asked me, um, what are you talking about? I said, I'm just looking at messianic prophecy. And uh, she says, well, what's that? And I said, well, I'll read one to you. So I read to her what I read here. And when I was done, she was in tears. She knew exactly who I was reading about. It's, there's just so much clarity in the prophecy. I mean, there's things in there that require you know, interpretation and definition and all that, but um, you look at it and you, you know what is being talked about. Um, and the clarity of it has so challenged, uh, and me and Mark were talking about this last week, it has so challenged Jewish theology that they've, they've done their best to twist it and say that it's talking about the nation of Israel. That they're the suffering servant, and so you have the suffering servant suffering for the sins of others. Who is the suffering servant? It, it, it just you cannot read that into the text without everybody, you know, their minds just spinning. Uh, but when you just take it at face value, everybody says, "Well, that's Jesus. That's Jesus." So the suffering servant. Um, so immediately, as we read in verse 12 of chapter 52, uh, our attention is by God himself, drawn to the servant of the Lord. And Isaiah has been bringing him up in pieces throughout this. We know that already that he's a divine person who has donned a human body. Uh, We know who this is. Uh, Much has been revealed about him through the book of Isaiah. But here, things become ultra-specific about something that he would accomplish. Um, And it's, it's boiled down to... Not, as we'll mention in a little bit, not the mechanics of what happened, uh, but the nature of what he did. The, the mechanics are Psalm, 50, or Psalm 22. You know, They pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, but here it's, it's the nature of things. We're talking about penal and substitutional atonement, uh, which is the ultimate reason that Jesus came. He was, he was born into this world to die for the world. Um, he did a lot of things while he was alive. But he was born to die. And, um, so let's, let's look a little closer at it. So he begins, uh, the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, that is wisely, and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So the Lord's servant, and concerning his servant, the Lord himself anticipates his exaltation, uh, his triumph by way of his wise dealings. Okay, He is wise. Uh, He's, and his wisdom will lead to his elevation, we might say. He will serve the Lord to that end. He's been provided a mission, he will execute it, and the anticipation of the Lord will take place. Where do we see that discussed in the New Testament? When I say it, you'll just recognize it immediately. I'll read it to you. The Father highly exalted him, has given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those in earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what you have is you have the incarnation of Christ, which is this extreme humiliation of Jesus all the way to the point of his death. And then because of his obedience, the text says, the Father exalts him. And, you know, Jesus even said that he who humbles himself, will be exalted. So what was anticipated came to pass, and we're going to be the witnesses of this when we view Christ in his glory and his kingdom. Great stuff. He says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So here he's explaining that the way of, for this servant, the way of exaltation and triumph is through the gauntlet. It's by the way of suffering, by way of being, as the text says, disfigured. It says his visage, his form. Uh, the idea is the way that he normally appeared, the way he looked before his suffering, the way that people recognized him would be so badly disfigured that he would not be recognizable. And then, of course, you mingle his blood with dirt in all of that, he would just be monstrous, and this may not have only been the case, you know, after he was beaten, that he was just so marred, but even after the resurrection, you remember when he appeared to the disciples. The disciples knew that it was Jesus, but they were having troubles, sort of recognizing him. Something was wrong. Okay, something was very different about him, so that they were just off. We already discussed uh, from Isaiah 50 verse 6 that. Uh, during the time where they were torturing him, they were yarding his beard out. Okay, and you know Jewish men have bushy beards, and, and many Lewis County men have bushy beards. But if we were to yard out your beard, uh, the bushy beard guys, you would be nearly unrecognizable, even by your family. And I shared that my dad worked for the railroad. He would go shorn, and he would come back months later with a full beard. And or vice versa, we wouldn't know who the guy was. Okay? And uh, so that's one thing that made it difficult for people to recognize. But here I think it may indicate that the trauma from what he endured during the trial before Pilate left his face so scarred that he was difficult to recognize. You guys have seen people that have been in you know, terrible accidents or terrible burns, and maybe you've known them before and after, and how different they can can look. You know, we know that he bears the scars from the nails in his hands and his feet and the spear in his side. So there's no reason to think that he does not bear the scars on his back and, you know, from scourging and on his face from the beatings. Um, What Jesus endured was just completely horrific. So these, you know, these paintings of Jesus representing his, his appearance, you know, after the resurrection or just before the ascension, they're off the mark. Okay, they're off the mark. Uh, one scholar says we should not uh, be shocked when we see that Christ is not all that we thought him to be, but those marks of his will be his glory for all eternity. Yeah, Those who saw him, as it says, you know, astonished, uh, and he was tortured, they were appalled. I think there's even some implication of that from Pilate. You know, Pilate delivered him over to be scores, but when they brought him back, I, th- I think he was like, that's not what I was expecting. That was you know, a little over the top. They were appalled, shocked. You know, they stared in wonder. He says, So shall he sprinkle many nations, and kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall con- consider. His disfigurement, uh, his suffering, resulted, as the text is saying, in the sprinkling of the nations. That's literally the peoples. That's important. What uh, does the Great Commission uh, give us the task to do? It, yeah, it's to take that message of the atonement of Christ to all of the the unique, you know, ethnicity ethnicities, every distinct people group. You know, the sprinkling here in the overall context of the prophecy is, is clear. It refers to cleansing, to purifying, and uh, you know the atoning nature of what he has accomplished in his suffering. You know, he wasn't. You know, beaten for nothing. It was for the atonement of the people. You remember that on the Day of Atonement, at Yom Kippur, the high priest would bring blood—that a bowl of blood—and he'd have hyssop with him, and he would dip the, the the hyssop in the blood, and he would he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and that way he would be atoning. He would be covering the the sins of the people. So here we see, you know, Christ as the, the ultimate high priest, not sprinkling the blood of bulls and goats, as the author of Hebrews says, but his own precious blood uh, to, in order to atone for the sins of humanity because the, the, the blood of bulls and goats, as the author says, it will never do. It will never do. All of this stuff about the atonement will be explained further into the prophecy. And he says here, but uh, because of what this servant accomplishes uh, or by what was done to him, it says kings will be, their mouths will be stopped. They'll be speechless. Now, I don't know if this is, because um, Jesus didn't really stand before kings, plural, but the gospel has been taken to kings, plural, uh, and it says that their, their mouths will be stopped. They will be um, speechless. And so I wonder if, if it's by the message um, that he you know, endured the, the unthinkable to achieve the impossible, uh, what he went through, all of those things that that it will just be, it'll just leave people speechless. Anyway, uh, I'm not sure exactly what all of that means, but the three verses here uh, serve kind of as an introduction, uh, somewhat of an outline for what is coming in the rest of the prophecy. And as I said, there, the, Isaiah 53 should have begun in Isaiah 52:13, So we're just going to roll right into verse 1 of 53. So in what has been said and what will be said, Isaiah says, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I don't know why verse is up there. Why is my slide all dorked up? Oh, it's just there. Oh, you can see it fine. I can't see Isaiah 53 verse one up there. I just see the text. Well, forget about it. Okay, relax. It's okay. Yeah. So he's saying, who's going to believe such a thing? Who will accept that God has done this with his own servant? No no such thing has happened before. There's no prescription, there's no provision for something like this in the law of Moses. Who's going to buy it? That a servant could be marred as a means for man's atonement. Certainly, this has got to be a special man, right? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a shoot out of dry ground. And he has no form or, or comeliness, or that's majesty. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Someone special? Well, not by appearance at least. Okay, His, his upbringing is, or was, not in the most uh, fertile ground as it were, but dry ground, it's difficult to cultivate things in that. This servant will have difficulty... Throughout his formative years is what most scholars believe this kind of figure of speech is. And as far as his normal appearance, when you, if you were to see him on the street, there's nothing that would catch your eye. There's nothing that would draw your attention to him. He's not attractive. He actually lacks beauty. So he's not celebrity material. He doesn't look like a tall, dark, handsome you know, warrior king, a knight in shining armor. So he would be less than average. He's ordinary at best, but it gets worse. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. What a superstitious kind of statement that all of his troubles that he's experienced in his upbringing and, and the treatment of the people this has got to be because he's been afflicted by God. You remember Paul when uh, he was on the island after the shipwreck and they built this fire and as he was gathering sticks, a viper came out and bit him and, and uh, they said, surely he's escaped the ocean, but you know this particular uh, Pagan deity won't let him escape justice. And so the snake has gotten him. And, uh, and then he shook the snake off in the fire and, and they observed him and nothing happened. And so then they came up with another superstitious thing. Yeah. So people wouldn't just be you know, unimpressed with him. And so therefore you kind of you know, leave him alone. No, they despised him. They, they rejected him. They pushed him away. They, they actively lowly esteemed him and subjected him to grief and sorrow. And so not only would he, they retreat him as he is grieved by them, as we've said, they'll see his suffering as him getting what he deserves. They'll you know, interpret his circumstances as punishment from God for something he's done. He, he's getting what he deserves. But I, Isaiah slips in a little light here just to clear things up. Surely it was for our griefs, our sorrows that he suffered, which is what is revealed in the rest of the prophecy. You see? And so Isaiah's original uh, concern comes through. Who's going to believe all this? But somebody like that could be used for something like this. God is going to use this despised person to fulfill his purposes? If he's shunned and despised, how's anybody going to receive him, respect him? Certainly, how will he be exalted? How are we going to communicate this? You remember when Samuel went to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse, and uh, he was there to anoint one of his sons as king. So of course they started with the firstborn who was tall, dark, handsome, and powerful. And Samuel said, behold, the Lord's anointed. And the Lord is like, what is wrong with you people? I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the inward, right? Jesus' qualities were not on display in his physical appearance. Everything was inside, his wisdom, his teaching, his conduct, of course, his deity, you know, shrouded by his humanity. And Isaiah goes on, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace, that is, so that we could have peace with God, was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So Jesus was indeed, he was stricken. He was smitten and afflicted by God, but it's not for what they thought for sure, and for what many people may think. His great suffering that left him so disfigured, the wounds that he received, his bruises and stripes, the punishment he endured, it was not for his own transgressions or his iniquities or sins, but for ours, for yours and for mine. This is nothing else than penal substitutional atonement. Penal meaning he was being penalized, for moral or legal infractions. He was being penalized. Substitutional, the, the theological term is uh, vicarious, meaning in the place of another. So he was being penalized for someone else. Yeah, so The servant of the Lord would be judged in the place of others and for their crimes against God. His life would be exchanged for their life. He would Endure the wrath of God to spare others from it. He would be punished so that others could be pardoned. Trying to say it as many ways as I can when I share the gospel, I hear people say that Jesus died for for my sin, and I say, What does that mean? What do you mean by that statement? We died for our sins. So I ask, I clarify. Do you mean that Jesus became guilty for your sin and then God judged him for what you did? Oh no. Well, then we're not talking about the same gospel. I mean, what did you think that he died for our sins anyway? Sometimes I say, are you saying that your sin was so bad that the only way for a just God to forgive you was to punish his son for what you did? Oh, I don't know about that. Well, then you don't have any understanding of your own sin. That's exactly what had to happen. That's the nature of, of this. When my children were smaller, I'd tell them that Jesus got in trouble for what we did wrong so we wouldn't get in trouble with God. Probably college age need that now. The idea of you know penal substitution or vicarious atonement, it's nothing new for the Jew. Okay, Animals were offered in their place every day in the temple. But this is new. The idea of a man being a substitute for another man in the context of atonement, that's brand new. Okay? In fact, it was against the law of Moses to do that in the temple. No man can do this. This is only something that God can do and it be just. So there's nothing in the law for this, just against this. It was just the blood of bulls and goats and sheep. That's what could be offered in the temple. But man, we're talking about a man, a servant of the Lord being punished for sinners. Now real quick, the end of the passage says that, you know, by his stripes, we are healed. Okay. Now, some of it. Now, I don't know where everybody comes from in Calvary Chapel these days. Okay. So we may cross as I talk about this, and I'm going to give you my explanation for it. And if it doesn't sit well with you afterwards, uh, let's please chat with this or about this. Okay. All right. So the end of the passage declares that by his stripes we're healed. Now, if we're holding to the context. The healing mentioned here is not physical, but it's spiritual. Okay? Jesus did not suffer for man's physical sickness. He did not atone for our sickness. Sickness in general is a consequence of man's sin. Right? When Adam sinned in the garden, sickness was one of the things that resulted. It was a consequence of rebellion. Sickness itself is not sinful, but a product. Okay? Jesus suffered not for our consequences, but for our sins, okay? He didn't face the consequences for our consequences, our sickness. He faced the consequences for our sins. There is no punishment for illness. Jesus' atonement addressed the malady of man's soul, which is sin, transgression, iniquity, rebellion, whatever you want to call it. Now, there's a doctrine known as healing in the atonement. Healing in the atonement. Uh, when praying for a sick person, you'll sometimes hear people claim healing in the atonement because by his stripes, we are healed. I don't know if you've heard that or not. When I served with uh, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, I had to write a paper in defense of this doctrine that there's healing in the atonement, and I had to write it in order to be ordained with the Christian Missionary Alliance. Well, I couldn't write that paper, but I did write a paper. I wrote a paper against the doctrine, and then it was brought up by the district superintendent at a conference, and I had to explain myself. So I told him and the group present that the children's bread, which is the denomination's book that they use to defend the doctrine, I said that to the group that it was a perfect example of biblical eisegesis. Now, isogesis is comes from a Greek word that means to put in. So, And in the context of biblical interpretation, it means that you're taking your ideas, your doctrines, your presuppositions, biases, and you put them into the text, and then you pull them out as if you were exegeting them. And then you present that. And uh, So to my surprise, the superintendent agreed with my perspective on the book, but he held to healing in the atonement anyway. So, uh, but today, more than ever, uh, I believe that that doctrine is actually a distraction from what the atonement actually accomplishes, okay? I don't think you can exegete it from the text, okay, or anywhere in the Bible. And many people, uh, in my experience, have been hurt by the doctrine because they themselves have never experienced physical healing, and they're smart enough that they can put two and two together. You see, if they don't have enough faith to be healed, how can they be confident they had enough faith to be saved? And if they didn't have enough faith to be healed, and the text says that by his stripes, speaking of the believer, we are healed, then they don't have enough faith to be saved. Because the passage also goes on to say that all of this was for the atonement of our sins, for justification unto salvation, you see. As I said, Jesus' atonement, his suffering was the punishment for our sin. He wasn't being judged for consequences. He suffered the consequences. That is, he suffered for our sins. As I said, sickness is not a sin. It's a consequence. And Jesus didn't come to atone for our consequences, but sin. Now, I do believe that in eternity, every piece, every part of the curse will be abolished. And every blessing will be inherited all because Jesus is death and his resurrection. Our bodies will be whole. There will be no illness, no death, all because of his death and resurrection. But here and now, there's no physical promises for our wellness, our physical wellness. Now, also, I must say, just because I do not accept the doctrine of healing in the atonement does not mean that I don't believe in divine healing. I do. I pray for people all the time to be healed, all right? Now, the apostles taught divine healing, right? They were used by God to heal others, but they did not teach, and they never once mentioned healing in the atonement itself. In fact, in the instruction in James 5, for sick people to call upon the elders so that they would anoint the sick with oil, he never says anything in that context about healing in the atonement, but that would have been the time to do it, okay? And he didn't. So, I don't adhere to that. Now, if you were raised in that, if you believe that, I, we should talk because I don't want us to have this tension between us because I don't have tension with you. I just disagree with the position. Is that, is that fair? Well, then let's move on, all right? Verse six, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All. Now this statement answers the question, why would the servant of the Lord need to provide atonement for us? Well, it's not because we have physical ailments or a drug problem or a marital issue. It's because as a race, as individuals, we have strayed morally, we've offended God, we've rejected his rule and his authority over our lives, and we've done what we please. We, we are a race of rebels, okay? And in order to recover us from ruin, to deliver us from eternal judgment, he took our guilt, he took our shame, our iniquity, that is God the Father did, and laid that upon his servant who was punished for it. Now in Romans chapter 321 to 425, we have this, you know, Paul's thesis on this, that he uses this, this word impute, and it's it's double imputation. So God takes the iniquity, sin and guilt of the sinner and he imputes it to Christ. That is, he transfers it to him and then he holds it against him. He punishes him for it. And then when we exercise faith in Christ, the Father takes the righteousness and the innocence and purity of Christ and he imputes it to us. He transfers transfers it to us and he holds it to our account. He rewards us for Christ's righteousness. Who's going to believe our report? Yeah, it's amazing. How did this go down? It says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. As I said at the beginning, if you want the mechanics of the atonement, you go to Psalm 22 where it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Many of the things that were said and done on Mount Calvary are mentioned in Psalm 22. You know, 800 years before crucifixion was invented, the piercing of hands and feet. In Isaiah 53, uh, as I said, we're looking at the nature of his death. It's, it's penal and it's, it's substitutional. Okay? There are some details. We know there's a trial. We know there's injustice and things like that. But most of it is devoted to the nature of his death. It says here that he's unjustly oppressed, he's afflicted. But interestingly... He's silent like a lamb before its shearers or on the way to the slaughter. He didn't complain. He didn't resist. In fact, when he was given the opportunity to re- resist, he said to Pilate, I could, and you would all be done. But this is what I've come for. I'm here to finish the job that my father has given me. He went along quietly. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. So after being you know, falsely accused and, and struck contrary to the law, that is before the high priest, he was thrown into prison for the night, basic kind of, for which he was then led to trial before Pilate where the Jews accused him of two crimes. Okay, they accused him of blasphemy and they accused him of insurrection. Now, it was the Jews who were so upset with blasphemy. Remember, Jesus claimed to be God, okay? And when he wasn't claiming it, he was implying it. He was insinuating it. And when he wasn't doing that, he was performing acts of God, his authority over nature and demons and illness and all things. And the Jews just weren't having it, so he was a blasphemer. Well, the problem was they, they, they sent him to Pilate so they could leverage the power, the authority of Rome to get rid of him because they had no authority to execute people. Now, they would, they would throw stones at him in an alley you know, when nobody was watching, but they had to leverage the, the authority of Rome to execute him. Well, Rome is like, blasphemy. We don't care about blasphemy. What else you got? And they're like, uh, insurrection. He's got this gang of fishermen. They're dangerous. And Pilate wasn't going for it. And they said, well, if, if you're not, if you don't, I mean, you're no friend of Caesar. You've got a rebellion going on, and you're not going to punish it? Well, see, delegations from Israel of Jews had been sent to Rome before to tattle on governors and kings before. And they were some deposed, some punished. And so Pilate was like, we're not playing that game. Let's kill him, okay? So as a coward, he, he goes through with this. It's a bogus trial. So Jesus wasn't exactly executed. He was murdered by the state. And then to this injustice, Isaiah inserts, he says, who will declare his generation? Now, the Hebrew word that is translated as declare in the New King James is translated as consider in the NASB and the ESV. So which is it? Is something to be said or is something to be thought about? Now, the word uh, in the Old Testament, it's not used a whole lot of times, but it's typically used of something that is said, declared or complained about, and it's in the poetic sections of the Psalms that it's used for meditation, for pondering and considering. Okay? Now the phrase and the context is probably Isaiah's shocking response to the previous verse that says the servant was silent. He didn't stand up for himself in the face of corruption and injustice. He's like, well, if he's not going to do it, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? You know, no one's standing there watching. None of his contemporaries, speaking of his generation, no one from the crowd was objecting to what was happening. There was no one to defend the one that wasn't defending himself, though they saw him every day during Passover healing people, ministering to people, teaching the people, having compassion. All they saw him do was only good. So why isn't anybody standing up for this man and saying something? It's astonishing that no one would would do that or demand evidence to confirm the accusations as the law of God requires. And instead of declaring his innocence, they shouted, away with him, crucify him. Get this person away from us. They unwittingly demanded that he get what they deserve. And he did, for the text says, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, they is a reference to those who were responsible for his death, and their intention, uh, it seems, was to uh, to to well desecrate him, as it were. Okay, uh, their intention here is placed in contrast to God's intervention. Okay, grave and death are apparently synonyms in the passage to form a parallel whereas wicked and rich are in contrast to one another. They had intended to dispose of Jesus' body among the criminals. They're at Golgotha, the mountain where the, the skulls of dead criminals were scattered. They were just going to dispose of him like he was a common criminal of Rome, okay? But God intervened and had him placed, where? In Joseph's tomb, a rich man. Why? Well, because he was innocent of violence and deceit. He was innocent. He wasn't guilty of anything. That is essential to the doctrine of atonement. An atoning substitute can have no moral blemish. God can only accept a flawless, morally flawless substitute. If a substitute bears any blemish of their own, if he's to be, if he's to be blamed for anything at all, he must suffer for his own sins. He cannot suffer for the sins of another. So sin disqualifies all of humanity as a substitute for another person. But Jesus, he was spotless. He was without blemish. He was the Passover lamb. You remember from the law of God, when the Passover lamb was selected, it could have no blemish in its appearance. It had to be perfect, as well as the, the eye could see, symbolizing that if something is going to sub, be a substitute for another in the context of atonement, it had to be pure. So for that reason and others, he was qualified to be an atoning sacrifice for sinners. Now real quick, to, to close up here, I want to look at a question that arises from the text. Okay, How would man treat the man who bears all the sin and guilt of men? How would we answer that from the text? How would man mankind, treat the man who bears all the sin and guilt of mankind? How would they treat him? What would the world do to the man who became guilty of all of their crimes? The text answers it. They would disfigure him more than any man. Interesting what we would do to those that are guilty of our own sin. They would despise and reject him. They would shun him, lowly esteem him, and look down on him. We would wound and bruise and punish and scourge him. We would oppress and afflict him. We would, we would prepare him a grave among the wicked, and then we would demand his death. It's interesting that we would get rid of the man who was guilty of our sins. We would kill him for our wickedness, for what we deserve. Now, the question we'll ponder next time from the second half of the prophecy is, what would God do to the man who bore all the guilt, not the guilty of man, but the guilt of man? Read ahead and think about that question. Go ahead and stand up. Let's pray. The quick answer is everybody knows what to do with sin. Sinners and God alike. Yeah, Father, we thank you for the atonement. We thank you that Jesus, we thank you that you volunteered to surrender your life in our place, that you gave yourself in judgment so that we might not just avoid it, but we might receive your righteousness and be rewarded for it. Lord, I... I I'm just always amazed when I ponder this, when I read about it, and Lord, I just pray that the weight and the gravity of it would dawn upon us more and more, it would bring a sense of sobriety in light of our lives and our conduct, our mortality, and that one day we'll stand before the judge of all the earth. Lord, you have satisfied all of divine justice at Calvary. Lord, help us to walk worthy of the sacrifice. Thank you for it, Lord. We